This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean has a PhD in computer science, was a postdoctoral student at Stanford's medical school, and is an ex-Googler and startup founder, now serving as head of developer relations at Skyflow, an architectural solution for data privacy. Sean has published works covering a wide range of topics, from information visualization, quantum computing, developer experience, to data privacy. You can find more of his work by following him on Twitter at Sean Falconer. Software engineering can be a surprisingly grueling career. It's both physically and mentally demanding to sit in front of a screen for hours on end producing code. Andy Johns is our guest on this episode. Andy previously worked on growth at Facebook, Twitter, and Quora as an early employee. He's also an investor in Robinhood, Webflow, and Reforge. Andy joins the show to discuss mental health in tech, burnout, and work-life balance. Check out the show notes to learn more about Andy's work, specifically his Substack blog on mental health. Andy, welcome to the show. Sean, good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Could we start by you introducing yourself and sharing some of your backstory? Sure, sure. So I started in the tech industry, you know, about 16, 17 years ago. But before that, you know, I grew up in a small family farm in a blue collar small community in Central California. I didn't really have any exposure to the world of tech, but through a lot of soul searching combined with some luck and creativity, I made my way into the technology industry, which has been my professional home. You know, about a year and a half ago, I took a step back from full-time really 24-7 work, both as an executive at startups and as a venture capitalist, to embark on a new new stage in life, really motivated by, by my own mental health journey. But that's the short story is I, I poured everything into startups for a long period of time. And then there came a point where it was clear that I had accomplished enough, but also that I was ready to be kinder to myself and to not put myself through the ringer again if it was unnecessary. That's led me to the work that I'm doing now in the world of mental health and, and why I'm chatting with you today. And could you share a little bit about, you know, your personal story with mental health and, you know, where did those struggles begin and how did it manifest and what were some of the ways that you tried to cope with those things? Sure. The origin of it all goes back to my childhood. The first 10 years of my life, certainly from a child's perspective, was pretty chaotic we were a low-income family. My mom was very mentally ill. She was manic bipolar, major depressive. And that introduced a lot of volatility in my life as well as for the rest of my family. And some difficult experiences as part of that. And it, it left a, a pretty significant imprint on my psychology, on my mind. And that, that started when I was quite young. It culminated with my mom passing away when I was 10. Our family was also bankrupt at the time, in part due to the medical bills that my dad was attempting to cover. And so we were just in a rough place. And thanks to, I'd say, some good fortune, good family values, and a lot of hard work, we managed to dig ourselves out of that. And me and my two brothers and my dad have, have gone on to live you know, pretty healthy, sane, successful lives. But interestingly, what happened for me was that it was when I was around 27 that the impact of 
the early childhood trauma and neglect that I experienced, that bubbled to the surface. And it bubbled to the surface in the form of sudden onset of panic attacks, depression, occasional suicidality. And I didn't know what was going on because the psychological and physical manifestations just popped up rather suddenly. But what I did know was that something was seriously wrong and that led to me seeking out professional help for the first time and connecting with a therapist who now 12, 13 years later, I, I continue to work with. Now, that was the origin of it. And it was you know around 2010 when I first, from a formal clinical perspective, started to engage in the world of mental health. And you know, during this time, you worked for a lot of really high-profile, high-growth companies, companies like Facebook and Twitter and Wealthfront. And do you think that you would have encountered these like similar mental health issues regardless of the types of companies you worked for? Or was there something particular about working for these, these companies' work environments or these high-growth companies that manifested these issues for you? It was nothing specific to the companies. I think anyone can relate to the stress and the pressure having been a part of any startup, really. They were companies like Facebook and Twitter in the early days were very challenging, of course, but it had nothing to do with those specifically. Instead, the way that I've come to understand it and relate the experiences of my past to my career and to both the success and the challenges I experienced along the way is that for me, my professional life was really a reflection of a low sense of self-worth. And I'll unpack that a little bit. So when you're a kid and you still don't have the intellectual and emotional capacities of an adult, you have this really strong dependence on the nurturing and the care and the affection that you receive, especially from the adults in your life. And as such, children are very narcissistic. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean that in the sense of it's, you know, as an organism, it's so dependent on the adults that biologically and psychologically, there's a real need for connection and for care and for nurturing. And the messages that, that I received when I was younger in particular around the the trauma and the pain that I experienced with my mom's uh, mental illness was that I interpreted some of the things that happened to me, such as the neglect or the abuse. I interpreted those as the direct result of who I was. So in other words, like I was on the receiving end of less than nurturing care. Therefore, it must have been because of who I was as a kid. And so I really internalized this, this message that if I was just a better kid, if I was doing well, if I was succeeding and hitting home runs and blue ribbons and all that stuff, then the take home message for me was if I am succeeding at the highest level and if I'm basically being this perfect kid, then I am lovable. But if I'm not succeeding, if I'm not perfect, then I'm not lovable for who I am. And I didn't realize that that's what was happening at the time. That was the internal narrative that was sitting unconsciously waiting to manifest itself in my life as an adult. And so I basically became this hyper achiever 
because it was through the external validation that I received from achievement, whether it's academic or sports or anything else, that when I achieved externally, I received love in return. And eventually that just, I had a very unhealthy relationship with that internal belief system such that I reached a point where there wasn't a clear end to my desire to achieve. You know, I was climbing the career ladder. I was getting promotions. I was making more money. I was gaining esteem and notoriety. But at the peak of my career, at least on paper, professionally and financially, I was at my lowest emotionally and spiritually. And I'd hit a rock bottom. I actually hit a rock bottom a couple of times. So much so that that's what compelled me to say, like, what gives? I, I'm doing everything I can to be a successful, high-achieving person, and I'm accomplishing those things, then why do I feel so terrible? And so I, I had to reconcile that disconnect. And that, that's largely what I was doing through therapy and other forms of work that I've done, is just trying to understand, like, why is it that I feel so terrible on the inside, despite what's going on in my life on the outside? So that's the connection. You know, it's nothing to do with the specific companies. The stress doesn't help, <laughs> you know, but it, it was really my association with achievement and a sense of self-worth that I needed to unpack and to resolve. Mm -hmm. And was this something when you were working for those companies, at least initially, or maybe throughout the, the entire time that you were actively trying to hide from the people you reported to? I wasn't actively trying to hide it. But I certainly didn't feel comfortable sharing it with anyone. It, you know, mental health as a whole carries a lot of stigma, you know, especially when you're still at the early stages of doing the inner engineering work to, to heal and to feel better. It's something that you mostly keep between you and your therapist. And even at that point, it's often the case that at the beginning of the therapeutic process, most people still don't feel comfortable fully admitting how they're feeling or the things they've done that make them feel guilt or shameful. And it takes a while for somebody to warm up even to their therapist to be open enough and transparent enough such that that therapist can really, really dive in and help out. So it, yeah, it is hardly anyone, including within my family, was aware of the work that I was doing. But I decided, you know, it was like a year and a half ago, really, where I said, okay, it's time to make a change with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, my father was a psychologist. He's retired now. But, you know, one of the things that he said when I was a kid that always stuck with me was that for whatever reason, you know, the public perception when it comes to, you know, treating the brain, people tend to get more hung up on that than, you know, treating some other organ within the body, like the heart or the lungs. And even culturally, I think we tend to talk about people who, you know, might have mental health issues as uh, quite a negative thing. Like, you know, he's cracking up mental breakdown, lost his mind. And there's really this historical stigma, it seems, between around mental health versus something like a physical health issue. Do you think that this is something that is starting to change? It is, but very, very slowly. And I suspect, you know, it's going to take a few more decades before you could say that in mass, the American population, for example, begins to think less negatively and certainly applies less stigma such that they'll seek help themselves. But we're still in the first inning of the ballgame, in my opinion, not only in terms of the existence of stigma around the subject, but also in terms of our understanding of the complexities of the human mind and how exactly to, to heal from psychiatric diseases. And you mentioned that 
it was only like a year and a half ago that you started to open up about some of the the work that you've been doing on yourself all this time to to even your family. And then earlier this year in March, you started to write about mental health and some of the things that you've gone through. through. So what motivated you to actually start writing about your personal journey with mental health? I like this question a lot because there's not one single event. It's more about like a fundamental shift in values and what my goals and objectives were, but also how I perceived the world. And what I mean by that is it's my belief or theory that when a child comes into the world, a child is deeply in touch with its feelings and emotions and sort of the bodily sensations that we might generally categorize as our intuition, these feelings of intuition. But kids don't have the brain development and the combination of the creation of a system of language yet to be able to express those complex feelings and emotions that exist in the body in a clear way. And that's why a kid cries everything. Hungry, it cries. It needs a new diaper, it cries. It, it doesn't like who it's being held by, it cries. <laughs> like they're, they're very perceptive, very in touch with what their needs are, and it's responding intuitively. And then through the process of getting older and socialization of life and becoming more ingrained into what we just generally refer to as civilization, we sort of move slowly out of this intuitive emotion, sort of feeling-based approach to the world. And then we become more intellectual. We start operating at the level of the intellect. And then we're using our brain for everything, including making decisions that should be made at the level of intuition or emotion. So, you know, it's like somebody could be working at a job and thinking like, ah, this job sucks. And like every part of their being is saying like, this career is not for you. And then what do we do? We write a, a pros and cons list down as if that's going to be the answer. It's like, no, just listen to yourself. Get back in touch with that innate intuition you have because something inside of your being is telling you that this isn't you. <laughs> and so, so much of this process of, at least for me, of transitioning away from the professional work that I was doing and then discovering this new work that I'm doing was a process of me unwinding that pattern of at first being very in touch with my intuitions and emotions as a child and then completely losing touch with that part of my intelligence operating in the intellectual space the entire time, trying to make rational decisions, making decisions around which career is going to make more money, which title has more esteem, which startup's going to be more successful. And instead saying, I'm not going to make a decision from that perspective. I'm going to make a decision based on what I feel. What I feel is most aligned with what is right for me. And so to get directly to your question, the, the way in which I arose or wound up writing my Substack was that over the course of a year, really all of 2021, I continued to just have this nagging feeling that I wanted to write. And I even felt that desire to write professionally when I was working, but I would only occasionally satisfy that by writing about things that were related to startups. And I experienced some joy in doing that. And there were times where the writing would really flow. But for example, I never completed a book on a professional subject because it just wasn't the right topic for me. But then this repeated sensation of like, Andy, just 
move beyond the fear that you have, move beyond the self-judgment, write about your authentic experiences as somebody who's had some significant ups and downs in the world of mental health, like just write. That was this feeling that I could not shake. And so I finally listened to it. And I was at a local coffee shop one day, not planning to write at all. (laughs) And that really guttural instinct popped up again. And I said, you know what? Like, I have to listen to this intuition. And that's what I did. I wrote the first post in March. The reception was well beyond what I expected. And here we are about six months later, and I'm up over 6,000 readers now. And so, like, it's on the right track. You know, I'm glad I listened to that instinct. And, you know, as somebody who's deeply connected to a lot of people in, you know, prominent positions in tech and having on the back of yourself being, you know, an executive at a a very well-known company, were you nervous at all or about what the potential negative reaction might be to talking about this type of stuff? Certainly, especially because so much of my personal identity was wrapped up in my career identity. Given that the lines between my personal and professional life had had mostly disappeared later on in my career. And so part of the fear was just the fear of saying goodbye to my old sense of self. That was a really big part of it. There's a bit of a feeling of, to use poker terminology, of being pot committed. You know, it's like, well, I've already put enough chips in. I might as well just keep putting more in. And, you know, there's a tendency to want to give in to that fallacy. There's also definitely the fear of, well, you know, there's going to be people out there that then say negative things that say, well, see, you know, he wasn't cracked up, you know, he wasn't tough enough or, or folks just doing something that's more implicit, which is just choosing not to do business with me in one form or another, because they say, oh, this person, you know, they have PTSD, not sure we can work with them. And yeah, that fear was there. It basically kept my finger on the publish button for about a year. (laughs) It wasn't until... I just finally said, eh, fuck it. You know what? Like, this is an act of me moving forward and saying, this is who I am and what I want to do. And I need to stop caring about what everyone else thinks. That's part of the problem. (laughs) And I'm really glad that I did. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned there was, you know, this fear that people might react and think like, oh, well, you know, Andy's just not tough enough to hack it. And I think, you know, we live very much in a culture of praising hard work, especially in, you know, the Bay Area or the Valley. And, you know, even when I was a, a startup founder, I remember talking to other founders and they would, you know, brag about all the time they spent working on the weekend and at nights. And meanwhile, a lot of times their startups didn't have customers or a business model, but I was always <laughs> curious about what they were actually doing during that time. But, you know, there's just this association between working crazy hours and startups and tech and success And do you think that there's a change happening and could a startup be successful with a more balanced approach? You know, can you compete in this market without essentially pushing your employees to the max? Like I'm a realist about this stuff too. And I've been an employee at four startups, you know, two of them, I was the first, one of the first 15 employees. Another one, I was about employee 100 and they're 5,000 people. And then the other, I was employee 300, and they're about 50,000 people now. And so I've, I've been involved early as an individual employee, but I've also seen it as an advisor and investor. And 
I've seen enough startups to be realistic around like the practical nature that they are extremely difficult, require a lot of risk and a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice. And I think that's just the nature of the beast. I'm not saying that that's the case for all startups. There are definitely cases of people that entrepreneurs that took their time building slowly and methodically, and then they build this great 10 million ARR quote, lifestyle business, which is kind of a condescending term, but that's a hell of a business by most standards. And they didn't break themselves in half. They still absolutely pushed themselves at times. And so I think it is the nature of the beast that it requires all of those sacrifices that can work at the detriment of physical and psychological health, as well as personal relationships, romantic relationships, family, and all those other things. Now, that said, I guess if, there, if there's a m message that I'm trying to get out, it's that the issue is when somebody makes those sacrifices for reasons that are driven by a subconscious part of themselves, or for reasons that are driven by the need for external validation to be accepted by others. I don't think there's anything wrong fundamentally if somebody came to me and said, I want to be the Michael Jordan of startups, and I'm going to sacrifice everything to be the greatest. And I'd say, well, if you know what you're doing, and if your intention is set and clear, and if you're going into it eyes wide open, understanding the implications of that, it's your life. You can pursue it exactly how you want to. I think the real issue is that I've seen it as a subtle yet pervasive characteristic of the collective psychology of the industry that I'm a part of, that there are a lot of people, whether they're founders or employees or investors, that are doing the work that they're doing, which is requiring significant sacrifices like those that I mentioned, but they don't really know the root cause or the real reason behind why they're doing it. And that there is at least some aspect of their subconscious that feels like they are unlovable and unworthy unless they do it otherwise. And so that's the message I'm trying to get across is that I want everyone to be able to make their own decision, but do so with the clarity and consciousness of knowing what they're getting into and knowing why they're doing it. You know, you wrote a great article titled Stop Asking for Career Advice, where you talk about, you know, this need to live for yourself. And maybe you can comment a little bit on how some of the things that you cover in that relate to this, you know, problem that you're, you're speaking to, which is that, you know, people seek achievement, not necessarily because, you know, in the case that you're mentioning of, you know, a deep desire to be the Michael Jordan of, you know, startups, but because of a feeling of lacking, like they're, you know, not living up to something that they think they should be living up to. Can you talk a little bit about what you've talked about in that article? Yeah. So the title was a little hyperbolic, <laughs> but I basically said like, stop asking for career advice. And the reason for that is if you ask somebody for advice around what you should do with your career, it's effectively another way of asking for somebody else to tell you what you should do with your life. And if you think about that, it's like, well, in some ways, maybe that's beneficial. Like there's career advice along the lines of a mentor asking you questions so that you as the mentee arrive at the answers yourself. And I think that that is a healthy form of coaching. That is fundamentally what therapists do, right? Is like try and assist you in discovering the answer for yourself. Because if you do, 
then it sticks. That's where real change happens. And the the pitfall I see with most common forms of career advice is when you sit down and ask a really smart, successful person, hey, what should I do with my career? Most of the advice that they give you is it's the playbook that worked for them in many cases, or it's the general playbook that is told to, to the entire industry. For example, in common one in tech is, you know, like the, the whole Sheryl Sandberg story of when she got the offer at Facebook and was talking to Eric Schmidt, the then CEO of Google about it. And he said, Hey, if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, don't ask what seat, just jump on it. And that's not bad advice at all. When somebody's goal is to rapidly climb up the career ladder, give themselves more optionality, get higher titles, make more money in a short period of time. I followed that to a T basically. <laughs> I just, I was like, let me find one rocket ship and jump from one to the other until I just had no more energy to jump. Right? <laughs> and it absolutely has served a purpose in my life around giving me financial comfort and independence. And I'm thankful for that. But eventually that risk of continuing to ask for advice comes at the consequence of an individual understanding for themselves, who am I and what do I want for me? It could be terrible advice to tell someone to jump on a rocket ship if it means that they jump on a rocket ship that prevents that per person from pursuing a path that may be less lucrative in terms of esteem and in terms of financial gain, but that path would have been one that is truly authentic to who they are and would have eventually been a path of of individuation or self-actualization where they would have really grown into who they are. So, uh, you know, one example that I just really, really enjoy is the early career decisions that Joe Rogan made. You know, he was at the time, just not a well-known comedian doing stand-up from time to time. And the name of the game in the nineties was if you're a comic, you try and get into sitcoms. And he made his way into a sitcom. He had a minor role, but he was, you know, a likable figure there and he was starting to build his career. But in his personal life, he had his own interests and hobbies around martial arts, having been a martial artist himself in his teenage years. And he, you know, came across this thing called, you know, the Ultimate Fighting Championship and he auditioned and he had the opportunity to basically become the the play-by-play -play commentary for this no-holds-barred sort of burgeoning backyard fight club. And Joe Rogan's agent at the time was just like, this is career death. If you take this role instead of jumping on the sitcom train, this is career death. And in a sense, he was right because that was the name of the game at the time was get on sitcoms, maybe you do Saturday Night Live and maybe you do a movie or two and then you're, you know, you're set. But Rogan was just like, nah, I... I'm going to pursue the thing that interests me. And clearly that's worked out well for him. He is a one of one. You know, whether you like him or not, it doesn't matter. What's clear is he's doing exactly what he wants to be doing. And because he's doing that, he's really, really succeeded at it. So th that's why I wrote the article. And it was, it was really inspired by a handful of conversations I'd had from people early, earlier in their career that had asked me from a mentor's perspective around career advice. And the very first question I ask them is, who are you and what future do you want? And in most cases, they would pause and freeze because they didn't really have an answer for that. And I said, if you know who you are and you know what future you want for yourself, 
then the career decision that you make will become self-evident. But if you don't know who you are and you don't have a vision for your future, that's when you turn to others in an attempt to fill in the blanks. So how does somebody, I guess, get to that point where they're not, you know, turning to others and falling into this trap of kind of always wanting more because they perceive that as the thing that they should be doing versus, you know, taking sort of the Joe Rogan path and carving out their own path that makes sense for for them and, and their desires? It's the age old question. And the short answer is it's not easy. It is quite difficult. And it requires, in most cases, a complete dedication to breaking free from the norms and expectations that have been placed on us slowly and consistently throughout the course of our entire lives through the process of being a socialized creature, being part of civilization. You know, the, the, I'm going to get a bit philosophical here, but my worldview is that society or civilization works when you can get enough people to subscribe to enough standardized beliefs. So you get beliefs around religion, around politics, around government, around education, around civic responsibility, around the economy. And then when you have enough people that congeal around those prescribed beliefs, then that's when a large collection of people can generally function. The thing is, though, is that can come often at the direct expense of individuation, <laughs> the, the person becoming their own individual self, especially going back to what I mentioned earlier of like, when you're a child, the scariest thing in the world is to be alone and is to be left alone or to be abandoned. It's like when you see a, a three-year-old child at the grocery store and they're walking down the aisle and they turn around and they realize that mom with the shopping cart isn't behind them anymore. They immediately jump into panic because we're so hardwired for the need for love and connection, especially from the adults in our life, because biologically we're dependent on them. We have this really long, you know, nine month incubation period of the bun in the, in the oven, but then it takes years afterwards before a human can be independently sustainable. And as a result of that biological dependence for survival, we have a really strong psychological root in the need for connection. And so what basically happens is like we're brought into this world with this deep rooted need for connection, but we're also brought into this world as our own unique individual selves. So we have those two fundamental needs, one to be ourselves, to be authentic, and the other to be connected. But because that need for connection is so strong and so scary to think of not having, say, the parents in your life or not having the friends or anyone to connect with, that often what a kid does is they suppress their individuality for the benefit of staying connected to others. And that's what we call conformity. And so we conform into these cliques and into these like increasingly small tribes, whether it's around fashion or it's around sports or like... You know, when I was in, in high school in the 90s, it's like you could see the, you know, you had the jocks and then you had the, the goths and then you had the cheerleaders, right? And like everyone falls into these groups. And really, that's just an expression of, of people saying, I don't want to be alone. I do want to be myself. But in the past, when I've tried to be myself, sometimes people don't like that. And so I've learned to just stop expressing my individuality. And so that's what I think is really at the core of 
the career decisions that a lot of folks like myself make going into adulthood is because that fear of walking their own path is that they won't be accepted and loved and welcomed by others. And so I think that's what, you know, certainly in my case, that's what prevented me from listening to my intuition and saying, Andy, like, stop working this hard. You don't have to anymore. You don't have to prove anything to others. You're likable and lovable as you are. Just go and do your own thing and be yourself. I was afraid of that for a really long time. And it wasn't until I really unpacked at a deeper psychological level the root and the origin of why I felt that way, where then I had the opportunity to sort of break free of that and move on and then start to walk my own path and do my own thing. I think you touched on something I think is really important to where we are in, in the work world today, where you, you, know, you talked about the three-year-old child, that you know, the fear of being alone. And we live in a world now where because of the pandemic, more and more people are working from home and that creates a lot of isolation for people, you know, even in, in my own life, probably the time I struggled the most with depression was during my first couple of years of university. You know, I'd moved away from my home at 17 and I lived off campus and I basically like cut off all ties to friends that I had in high school because I kind of felt like I was moving on and I didn't talk to anyone at university and I went to class and I basically went home and that was about it. So that total isolation from any connection to friends and even to family caused a lot of personal problems and it's a hard spiral to get out of. So for someone, you know, feeling isolated, what advice would you give them to help stay connected or get connected with people outside of the pure sort of work relationships that we have that exist through platforms like Zoom today? Yeah. And even in office, the work relationships aren't enough to meet the connection needs of most people and certainly over Zoom. You know, I experienced that too. And and you know, if I was still working at a startup, I would definitely be the sort of person that would be in the office at least three days a week, just so I could you know have more human contact. The most common option, though, is to turn to the forms of enabling human connection that tend to commonly exist within society. So, for example, as kids, it's easier because you have these institutions of education that bring us together on a daily basis, and you have these institutions of sports that bring us together. And then you get into college and it's sort of the same thing. And then into professional life, you still have the institutional work that brings us together, but it's not the same. You know, you're not doing recess. You're not (laughs) sitting in class with the same kids building really long relationships over a 12-year period. And so the the short answer is, is especially as you move into, you know, call it your late 20s and your 30s and beyond, the normal methods through which societal institutions could provide means through which we can meet our connection needs, like those go out the window and there's fewer of them. Now you can ask the question and say, well, what other forms of, of these natural groups or societal connections, what other forms take place? You can join, you know, adult sports. That's certainly one of them. That's why people like to go to, you know, soul cycle or the gym or, you know, they, they like to fall into routines because often those routines involve familiar faces Whenever I do work, I I don't like to work from home now. Unless it's a podcast interview, I'll do that at home. But otherwise, I go to a local coffee shop simply because I want to be around others. And I have gone there frequently enough to where it's a bunch of familiar faces. So I'd say that that's one channel to exhaust. The other, of course, is start your own family. There's no better form of connection than to build your own beautiful family. And that can be 
uh, you know, fur babies in addition to you know, non-fur babies. It's just your choice that the having a loving household is a really powerful thing. And that is typically what, what many people do when those forms of social connection from earlier in life sort of run their course. And then, you know, you go and start your own family. But I, I think a third option, which is the one that I'm also pursuing, you know, being 39 years old, I don't have children, I'm not married. I'm certainly in the class of people that within American culture, I say like, I'm fucking lonely a lot. It's it's common for me to be lonely. And I go, I go out of my way each day to get those small doses of socialization. But, you know, our culture isn't one in which people hang out a lot. It's very different in other parts of the world. So one thing I do is I spend about half my time in another place, another part of the world where the sense of community is much more common and natural. It's easy to be around and to see people everywhere all day, you know, whether it's like the cafe culture in Europe and sitting outside and socializing, right? <laughs> or the food markets that you get in Asia or South America. Like I spend time in those places to put myself in an environment that is inherently more social and connected. But the other thing that I do is I, I just say like, what new community can I create for myself? And that was one of the motivations for me to do my writing, which was, you know, I really enjoy connecting with people now who are on their own path of spiritual awakening or emotional healing. And I've never really been one for small talk. Now I especially don't give a shit about small talk. <laughs> it's just not, it doesn't fill my gas tank up and I suck at it. And it shows, I'm sure it shows when I stand there awkwardly next to somebody not knowing what to say. <laughs> but if they then said, hey, have you read any of Carl Jung? And then my eyes light up and I say, well, yeah, I have. I'm reading one of his books right now. Let's talk about psychoanalysis, right? <laughs> I'm trying to connect with people who have a similar interest in understanding and changing their own mind. And that's part of what I'm getting from this community that's building around the newsletter I'm writing. So I think that's the bit of advice I would give some folks that is not commonly tapped is to say, like, pause for a moment and think about what would be the perfect social setting for yourself. What is that ideal? Now go out and create it. That's awesome advice. And, you know, you mentioned this idea of going, you know, spending some of your time in other parts of the world where, that are different than the United States in the way that they, you know, might build and think about community. And that reminded me of this meme I saw a while back about summer vacation of, you know, Europeans versus Americans. And for the American employee, they're basically walking out of the workplace and saying, I'll see you in six weeks. Don't try to contact me. And then on the U.S. side, the employees, you know, step saying they're stepping out for a few hours for surgery but they'll have their phone with them if you, if you need to contact them and they'll be back at their desk within a few hours. Yeah. So the, I think the U.S., you know, it's a country known for, you know, doesn't prioritize vacation. And even when people are taking time off, they're still largely connected to work. So do you think mental health and tech is something that is primarily a U.S. problem? Or is this something that, you know, spans various cultures? Yeah, so my hypothesis on this is that for any rapidly developing economy that then places capitalism and rapid economic growth as the top priority, that once they get at least two or three generations into that and 
they quickly accelerate their economy and they lift a lot of people out of poverty and all these wonderful things happen that come as a byproduct of a strong embrace of industrialization, that what ends up happening is to put it in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You start at the bottom with these basic needs around survival of like food, safety, you know, reproduction, shelter. And when you are in a culture where there's an extremely weak economy, then there aren't a lot of people where it's it's guaranteed that they can meet their most fundamental needs. And so most of their time is spent working on meeting those fundamental needs and they can derive a lot of emotional and spiritual value out of the fight or the struggle to meet those fundamental needs. You know, it's a life well lived if they can put food on a ta- on their table and a roof over their head and send their kids to a school. There are many parts of the world where like that is a deep and purposeful meaning. And there's a lot of fulfillment that can come from meeting those fundamental needs. But then you get into cultures like in developed markets in the West, not just the US, but the UK. And what happens then is you have this incredibly strong economy. The fundamental needs for most people are met. And as time goes on, it's becoming easier and easier and more likely that those fundamental needs will be met. And then What happens, though, is as those needs are met, then a a higher order of needs occupies your psyche. The mind then starts thinking about, you know, I need love and connection. I need to be valued and to have sort of a public esteem. People need to respect me. And then above all that, what Maslow called self-actualization, which was like fully leaning into one's inherent capabilities and interests and becoming everything they can be. And so my interpretation of the collective set of symptoms that we're sort of seeing and talking about around how younger generations have really high rates of mental illness and they seem to be, you know, like bailing on most of our common forms of institution, whether it's our existing form of government, whether it's our existing form of our economy, whether it's traditional religion. This younger generation is sort of questioning all those things. And my interpretation of that is, well, yeah, all their fundamental needs are being met. And then at the same time, our culture has been telling them that the path towards fulfillment is one in which you get the best college degree you can, and then you get the highest paying job you can, and you just do that forever until you die. And then it turns out like that's not true. (laughs) That's just not, that's not the answer for most people in terms of meeting their real emotional and spiritual needs. And so I I kind of look at our culture and say like, yeah, we're experiencing a connection and a purpose crisis because we're not connected enough. And the question around purpose is a looming one. And I think the younger generation, beginning with millennials, like they were the ones that were starting to feel this, like, okay, just climbing the corporate ladder isn't the long-term solution to a life well-lived. This doesn't feel right. So I think you'll see just about every culture or country that goes through that rapid arc of development experience the same thing. We just happen to be on, uh, you know, the razor's edge being the largest, fastest growing economy in the world. We're also experiencing what I think is the, the largest crisis of connection and meaning. And, you know, we've talked quite a bit about how like the self-work that someone needs to do in order to 
you know, could not fall into this trap necessarily of pushing themselves based on this societal pressures or this feeling that they are only going to be have value if they're pushing themselves beyond uh, their capacity. But when it comes to, I want, want to take a, some time to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about what might be the responsibilities or things that like a business or a manager or friend can do for people that they recognize that might be showing symptoms of, you know, burning out or having other mental health issues. What are some of the things that I guess from a business perspective or a manager's perspective in the workplace, if they recognize that an employee might be struggling in this capacity, what are their responsibilities and what are some of the things that they can do to potentially help that person? The number one thing from my perspective, and this really stems from the experiences I've had in a clinical therapeutic setting, is that the mind can only heal when it feels safe. For example, if, if you ever watch a video on YouTube around, say, dog adoption, it's common that you'll see when you go to the pound that these animals are traumatized in many cases, either from the environment that they're presently in or from their prior environment with their prior owner. And the dog could be nervous and skittish and tail between its legs and shaking and all that. And the first thing that that new owner needs to do when they adopt that dog is find a way to make sure that the dog feels safe. And so you don't pressure the dog too much early on. You know, you bring it into the home. You don't force it to do anything it doesn't want to do. And if it needs seven days before it decides to crawl out of, you know, that, that hiding place behind the couch, well, then that's what the dog needs. And so you learn to be patient and to give it the space and to provide a safe environment such that when it finally feels safe, you can see the shift. You know, it may come over and sniff you. It may lay next to you. It may eat more. And then it's when that dog is happy and running around where then it's like, okay, let's teach this thing, you know, let's potty train it. Let's, uh, let's teach it how to sit. Trying to teach a dog to sit when it's scared shitless and it's shaking is pointless. And I use that example because with people, we commonly make this mistake. If I go to a manager and I don't feel like the environment is safe for me to say like, look, I know that you wanted me to work on this project. And like, honestly, like I'm trying, but I'm struggling. And I don't think I can do it. And they're afraid of the, the consequences of, of speaking up for themselves or to tell someone, you know, there's this mentality of up or out at a lot of tech companies where it's like, if you're not progressing, you're not improving, well, then you got to go because we only keep people that are constantly progressing. And on one hand, I can understand that. I've worked at startups where that was the culture. On the other hand, it also flies in the face of meeting the very real human needs of somebody. And so I can't give a specific prescription around what is required to make somebody feel safe. But what I can say is that as a manager or a people leader, unless people feel safe sharing with you that they're having a hard time, there's, there's no opportunity for that relationship to be nurtured and, and fostered in a way that not only meets their professional needs, but their personal ones. So that, that's just the number one. And for the employee, like if, if you're in an environment where they don't give a shit about trying to understand the human struggle <laughs> and they just want you to be, you know, typing into the spreadsheet and, and shut your mouth, like to the extent that you've got the opportunity to or you're in the financial position to uh, leave that company, find a place that treats you better. That's what I say is like people need to find a way to provide safety. I think 
one of the common forms of this at larger startups is you get like an, uh, you know, what they call a, or a larger tech company, I should say. It's usually not a startup at that point is you get an HR business partner, which is sort of that intermediary that you can talk to that sort of sits in between, you know, HR as a whole and your direct manager. And like, those are helpful attempts. I've, I've definitely had good interactions with, you know, HR business partners. But for the most part, you know, I haven't really had a lot of managers where <laughs> I felt safe saying, sorry, I'm just too tired and I just need a break right now without that showing up on my performance report. <laughs> so, you know, that would explain in part why I just bottled it all up, which wasn't a good solution. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking about that, do you think that in the same way that companies have typically programs, especially in tech, for, you know, Medical, physical care and insurance, you know, dental care and insurance, vision. Should there also be, should tech companies be prioritizing some insurance or service for mental health for their employees? It'd be great. There aren't a lot of options available because in many cases, and I experienced this directly myself in 2013, I wasn't able to get insurance on the private market because I was denied based on precondition for having a certain set of clinical psychiatric conditions. And so, you know, that I think the my understanding of the issue today is that, you know, the insurance co companies don't want to touch people with mental illness for the most part because they can't make the math work where it's profitable on their end. And they can't make it work because... They don't have the data that they need to show that if they pay for, if they cover the cost of a certain form of treatment, then it will reach a satisfactory resolution rate where then the math checks out and they can get their money back on that, on that customer. And so like until that is the case where there's enough data that then informs highly effective therapies that then leads to a high rate of resolution, we're not going to get insurance coverage for a lot of this stuff. And so I think the first thing that needs to happen is somehow, somewhere, some way for a lot more data to start being collected and analyzed in a central way so that we can start to drastically improve the efficacy rates of various forms of, of treatment for mental illness. Because if you look today at, say, you know, the rates at which some people have PTSD or, you know, bipolar disorder. And then you looked at those through the traditional lens of physical medicine and you said, okay, what percent of these do we heal or cure that we would define as, you know, job done? And in many of those cases, the resolution rates are down there with like rare forms of cancer. <laughs> and, you know, it's for the same reason that the insurance companies don't cover those because they can't make the math work because we don't have reliable treatments that lead to resolution. So I think we're going to have to figure out how to do a lot more of what is termed as like inspection of the organ. You know, when, when somebody goes to a psychologist and says, I'm depressed right now, all the psychologists can do is say, okay, let's talk about it. But if I went to a doctor and I said, my chest hurts, the doctor would say, well, let's do an x-ray or an MRI and maybe I'll take some saliva because I need to see if you're having a heart attack or if you're having heartburn. And they're able to then inspect the organ. And then with organ inspection providing data, that data then leads to treatments that are much more efficacious. And since the treatments are efficacious, then insurance gets on board. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure that there's companies or people working on this. 
maybe mental health uh, insurance specific to mental health patients. I'm sure there's something out there like this, but I think the thing that is hugely underrepresented and misunderstood is that, and I'm I'm willing to take a bet that we will find this to be unequivocally true over the next one or two generations as the science advances on this, is that an awful lot of common physical illness is actually derived from mental illness, where the brain is not separate from the body and vice versa. It's all one integrated unit. And when there is illness in the brain, it directly influences the body in a way that leads to chronic illness. So for example, there was a study, I believe it was, or a large data set coming out of Canada, I think. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, ACE, A-C-E. And basically what they did is they said, like, let's look at a huge set of children. Let's then tabulate a list, like a checkbox of all of these adverse experiences that a child could face. That could be, you know, the death of a parent, parents divorcing, so on and so forth. Anything that you can imagine is not a nurturing experience for a child. And then, you know, let's, let's sort of tabulate which of these less than nurturing experiences experiences a child has had. And then let's look later on in life at their health and let's start to identify patterns. And for example, there was a, for children like me that had experienced a similar set of traumatic childhood experiences, they were somewhere around 50 times more likely to have asthma. And then lo and behold, at the age of six, I'm diagnosed with asthma, which also happened to be in the midst of a lot of household chaos. And there's something interesting where an asthmatic response in a lot of ways is really inflammation. It's like the body responding and overreacting in a way that then constricts the lungs. And the medicine they give you is is a steroid, which they use steroids for all sorts of other autonomic diseases. And like, there's something there around how stress in the environment is then shaping the mind and then the mind is then flooding the body with stress hormones, which then leads to chronic illness. And so whether it's obesity, which can you know, certainly come from a psychological, you know, some form of psychological pain where people are soothing themselves by eating too much and leading to obesity, like the root cause there is a, a, a psychological pain. And so I think across the board with inflammatory diseases, common forms of cancer, irritable bowel syndrome, you name it, we're going to find irrefutable evidence that these are all brain-born, so to speak, and that the body is, is you know, Bessel van der Kolk wrote in his book, The Body Keeps the Score. The body keeps the score. <laughs> the body is telling you everything about what's going on in the mind. Yeah, it's amazing. When it comes to, you know, there's people who you know, struggle with mental health that is, you know, a clinical condition or a clinically diagnosed condition, but essentially everybody at some point in their life is, you know, feels stress from the pressures of work and maybe isolation or staying connected, other things that's going on in their life. What are some of the things, you know, strategies or recommendations you would have for making sure you're maintaining a healthy mental state when you're going through these different cycles within your life so that they don't end up being a serious health issue that could, as you said, could manifest actually as a physical health issue as well. There's a couple parts to it. One is, is thoughtfulness and intention. So think of it like going to the gym, right? If you said, well, my goal is to build muscle. Okay, well, then I'm going to go to the gym a certain number of times per week. 
And then I'm not going to overload my muscles to where I have major injuries, but I'm going to maybe increase the amount of weight I lifted, you know, working out my back this week by 10% relative to the prior week. And then with that incremental uplift, I'm striking the ideal balance between like stressing the body so that it then adapts to become bigger and stronger, but not overstressing it where then it's a completely counterproductive process. And mind health from my experience is, is the same. You want to think of it as you kind of like imagine you have this horizontal band and that horizontal band is, is a range of acceptable tolerance for one's nervous system. And it's not that we want to avoid stressful situations at all. It's that we want to avoid the sorts or the, the types of stressful situations that are either too extreme or so chronic that they have a net negative impact on the psychology of an individual. And so, for example, me, I, I've, I said, okay, well, I got a complex PTSD diagnosis, OCD. I basically am a hyper-nervous individual. My system is in fight-or-flight mode more than I would like it to be. And because it's hypervigilant, I then say, okay, well, my band of, of acceptable tolerances is narrow relative to the average person. And then I have to figure out what are the things that I can do that are day-to-day -day behaviors that keep me within that acceptable range of tolerance. And then be just as intentional by saying, okay, there are times where I want to step outside of that range, but I need to make sure that the juice is worth the squeeze. Now, if somebody finds that their core bodily functions are, are consistently disrupted, for example, sleep, diet, <laughs> even digestion and bowel movements, like all of those can be signs that the body is just being placed under undue chronic stress or extreme stress where these basic bodily functions of, of digestion and sleep and sex are now suffering. Like the organism is, is giving a feedback loop saying, Hey, Hey buddy, <laughs> this is too much. Right? So that's what I say to folks is like, they need to start with an inventory. And check in with themselves and say like, okay, across all these dimensions, how am I doing? And if they're curious what those dimensions are, like sit with a the therapist, you know, do a check-in with a professional and, and really analyze like, how am I across all these dimensions? And then if you get the general sense that like, okay, things are out of whack, then you need to be proactive in constructing a daily routine that helps you stay within an acceptable range of tolerance. And then from time to time, just make the intentional choice of saying, okay, I'm about to go do something difficult or stressful or more emotionally taxing. And I'm going to do this on purpose for a particular reason, or maybe it's necessary. You know, I'm, I got a kid on the way and it, it's just stressful, but what do I need to do to check in with myself to see how I'm doing? And then what routine can I turn to, to bring myself back within a, an acceptable range of tolerance? Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. I like the idea of this, you know, really this introspection and, you know, potentially working with a therapist to come up with understanding this, you know, your checklist and basically your parameters for success. You know, given that you've stepped away now from full-time executive roles in tech and you're writing and advocating for mental health, what else beyond, I guess, the journey that you've taken with writing about your challenges in mental health and are you focused on these days? Mm -hmm. 
I'm a passionate advocate for being on the frontier. <laughs> and what I mean is, as I mentioned earlier, our level of success in terms of being able to say that, hey, this person was depressed and they are no longer depressed, or this person had PTSD and they no longer have PTSD, like our, our rates at resolving those are quite low, single digit percentages in many cases. And what that tells me is that the current solutions that we have in place may be helpful. I wouldn't tell anyone that they should avoid a therapist. Like if you can find a great therapist, get one. <laughs> it's really helpful. But we clearly have further to go. If, if we want to obtain the same level of sort of mastery over parts of human health, like being able to reset a, a broken bone as, and apply that same level of success and reproducibility with mental health, then we're going to have to discover new methods, new treatments, new ways of living that haven't been applied yet, or, you know, tap into ancient wisdom, stuff that we did know way back in the day, but we've, we've lost in modern times. And so for me, it's a lot of, of what I'm doing now is sort of on the frontier. You know, the, the core of my, call it my base is I try and exercise every day, but it's not vigorous. You know, I sort of, I go with the consistency principle where it's like, I'm going to push myself to 70 or 80%, but do that every day. The diet and the, and the routine, of course, I try and sleep consistently and as well as I can, and then foster as many close loving relationships as I can. Because if, if somebody is physically healthy and if they are sort of their mind is calm and then they're able to spend a lot of time with people that they love and, and that love them, they're going to be doing pretty well. But above and beyond that, which is kind of the realm that I'm in now, is around infrequent but intentional use of various psychedelic substances for therapeutic purposes. That's one of them. The other is by way of a, an analogy to a tuning fork, which is that our body is basically one giant sensory organism that is in touch with its environment. If it's too hot, we sweat. If it's too cold, we get the chills and goosebumps. And there, there are countless examples of how our body is the sensing organism that's always surveying the landscape. And as such, depending on what environment you put it in, it's going to fall into resonance with that environment. You know, you can take the sweetest old lady, but you put her in LA traffic for five years and she's probably going to develop road rage. <laughs> right. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I, I said, like, I'm out of the Silicon Valley. I need to take my tuning fork out of here because it's, for me, I was unable to mitigate the effects of the environment on my nervous system, given my, my higher default state of alertness. And so that was a big one was I'm pulling myself out of there. But then that's, that's why I'm also spending uh, a lot of time in other countries because I'm very intentionally putting my body into an environment that it'll fall in resonance with. And once it does, it's going to be quite healthy. And for me, that means easy, easy access to really high quality, healthy, tasty food. I want to be in a, in a daily environment that is warm and welcoming and has a real communal sense to it. I want to be in an environment that isn't big city chaos. And that also doesn't place career drive and career success overly emphasized over every other part of life. So I want to be somewhere where like work is there, but work is just work. <laughs> you know, work is not the dominant factor. So for me, it's, it's parts of Southeast Asia that for where I'm at in my life and for what I want, it's, 
it's the tuning fork. I put my tuning fork over there. And when I do, I feel better. I'm healthier. I'm calmer. I'm happier. So that's what's driving me now are these, uh, you know, more exploration with different psychoactive substances with very clear intention done responsibly, not as a party thing. And the other is experiments with my human body as a tuning fork. Thanks so much, Andy, for coming on the show and sharing your story, your passion for helping those struggling with mental health and your transparency. And again, I really hope that this conversation will be helpful to anyone listening that might be impacted by mental health issues or are struggling with things at work and they're able to go and seek and find the help that they might need. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you all for carving out the time to talk about something this important. It means a lot to me and to others. So thank you.